Uh, let me try to say a couple things about it just to set it up, but uh, maybe two things about the question is, one, there's not an absolute, complete, like definitive answer to the question that everybody's going to agree on. Uh, we, we, some of us meet on Wednesdays at 5. Philip and I do some training with some of our people who feel called into full-time ministry. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday. There were six people in there and I think four different positions uh, on the end times. And so we feel like the details are something we can agree to disagree about. But what I'm going to try to do today is to try to boil it down into maybe two key words for us, uh, give some of the big picture of it in, in about 40, 45 minutes, which is quite the challenge. Dr. Aiken did a great job with doing that with a big question uh, last week. Uh, I don't know if I'll do as well as him, but really, I think a lot of these things kind of connect together. Um, some of what he said, I'll try to kind of add to this week. But the other thing I would say about this question, uh, what will the future and the end of the world look like according to Scripture? The second part of that question is actually a common myth. The Bible does not teach us that the world is going to end. The world's not going to end. The Bible tells us there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The world's going to be different, but it's not going to end. So just keep that in mind as we go through this. So Something uh, I'll piggyback off of from uh, John last week is he talked about the four big questions of life. Origin, uh, you know, where did I come from? And really we answered that the first week of this series in, in, in saying that we're created by God, for God, in, in the image of God. And of course different worldviews are going to approach this differently. Uh, a humanistic worldview is going to say that we evolved, so essentially, you know, we, we came from uh, nothing, you know, a product of chance and uh, time and matter and all these kind of things. But, you know, the Bible would say that uh, God is eternal, that he made us in his image. Uh, the problem is the fall, there's sin, and God making us in, in his image, it means he made us with the ability to choose and we're responsible for those choices. There's consequences to those choices. Uh, the solution is Jesus coming to save us. And you see, all this you know, fits together. And again, it, it ends up, how do you view the world? Because if we see the problem is sin, that means the problem is a heart problem. And so there has to be a heart solution, which can't come from within us. If that's what caused the problem in the first place, it has to come from outside of us. But then the other big question then is, is the future. I mean, where is the world heading? Now, let me just say this and kind of put a plug in for something. Uh, next week, the, the question kind of relates to this. It's the question of, like, how do I prepare for the future? Uh, how do I face the future in such a volatile and uncertain kind of world? And, and I, this question actually came from the Forge, our young adult group. And um, so if you're in that age range, we're going to try to address that in a real practical kind of way because, uh, you know, whatever the Bible teaches about the very end, the question is like, what's it going to be between now and then? And how do I plan my life? How do I prepare for the future? You know, if I'm 20, 25 years old and, uh, you know, I, my son's asked a question like, you know, with how the world is now, how am I ever going to get a house? That kind of thing. Those are real questions. So how do we plan for the future today? That's what we're going to look at uh, next. Next week, but the future. I mean, when it comes to like the the very end, uh, just to kind of boil it down to real simple terms, I think there's you know maybe three or four options we could look at. If you look at a secular humanistic worldview, again, you know we're not created, so 
We don't have a soul, so we're just going to die and we go to the ground and that's it on an individual level. But it's interesting, even though that's kind of the individual view, the, the corporate view is, well, you know, it, it, this is kind of what humanism espouses. It, 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 there's no deity to save us, but we need to save ourselves. So if we do what we need to do, we can like turn this world into basically like a utopia. We can create society the way that it ought to be. So that's an option. You know, most Eastern religions would espouse uh, a form of reincarnation, that everything's cyclical. And, and so, you know, we're just in this cycle of, you know, and hopefully you're going to come back better and not worse and that kind of thing. Uh, most religious people would believe in some type of heaven or afterlife. But the thing that would separate Christianity from every other religion is religion says we get there by our own effort, our own works, while biblical Christianity would say we can go to heaven because of what Jesus has done uh, for us. So uh, what's true? What's right? Well, even within Christianity, you know, when we're dealing with these issues of the end times, there's certainly different viewpoints on it. And, you know, like I was saying before, it's, it's okay to have a different viewpoint than what I have. I mean, in true life, we believe that there is a literal second coming of Jesus Christ, that someday he is going to return to the earth, and we believe you have to believe that to be orthodox. But uh, around that, when it comes to a lot of the details, which I'm going to try to stay uh, somewhat out of those weeds today, that, that we can view it in some uh, different kinds of ways. And so, again, I want to try to boil it down to something we can hang on to. And, and so I want to give you two words today that, that I hope you can take from this and hang on to when you think about the future and where the world is headed. Now, again, there's a lot more to it than this, and you know, this is one of these subjects could talk for hours on and probably only kind of scratching the surface with it. But let me give you these two words, okay? Throne and kingdom. Throne and kingdom. And so what, what I want to do in the next little while is basically give you a fast overview of the book of Revelation to try to answer this question and hinging it on these two words. Now, when you come to the book of Revelation, uh, why don't you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, or it'll be on the screen. And, and, and here's why this verse is important. I know there's, you know, parts of Revelation that are hard to understand. There's symbolism and that kind of thing. But even though there's symbols in there, the truth is literal. And, and I want you to remember that the way that we're to in interpret the Bible is we're, as much as we can, we're to look at the plain sense of it. The, the most obvious, natural reading of it. But we're also to interpret Scripture by Scripture. You interpret Scripture in its immediate context of what the verses before and after say, in the context of that book, and in the context of the entire Bible. And, and while uh, I would agree there are things in Revelation that are hard to understand, I don't think there's nearly as many as most people make them out to be if we follow uh, sound biblical uh, it's called hermeneutics, the science of Bible interpretation. If we let Scripture interpret itself, because uh, there's many places where the book of Revelation interprets itself. There's many places where uh, other places in the Bible uh, tell us how to interpret it. Uh, you see, if, if Revelation is the culmination, it's almost like, uh, what, think of a movie series. 
like The Godfather or Rocky or Star Wars or, or whatever other where there's been you know, multiple movies. If, if you've watched all of them, it, it's kind of like, uh, like the last Rocky. What was it, like Rocky 6 or something like that? 5? I don't know. But like, it, you could watch that movie just on its own. But when you've seen them all, there's things you pick up on because there's callbacks, there's, there's connections. I mean, we think about, you know, like the, the, the Godfather uh, trilogy, the second one is basically an origin story. And so it, it all kind of, uh, you know, connects together. You see similar things going on uh, with Star Wars. And in some sense, that's what's going on with the book of Revelation, where uh, these threads throughout the Bible are being tied together in this one place. I would encourage you uh, to read the first three chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation and see how it bookends and see how there's this one uh, intervening story, this overarching story that is being threaded through the Bible uh, in between those two places. But the book of Revelation actually outlines itself for us in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So what is that? Chapter 1 is what he had seen, which was a vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, were letters to seven churches in seven places in, in Asia Minor that, that were you know, actual congregations at that time that, these, uh, that this, these letters were sent to. And then the things that will take place after this is the rest of the book starting in chapter 4. Now, Revelation in, in, in the introduction at the beginning of chapter 1 calls itself a prophecy. Now, people debate, was that prophecy fulfilled in the near term? Was it fulfilled, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago? Or is it still, you know, for the very end of, the, you know, human existence as we know it now, remembering that the world's not going to end because there's a new heaven and a new earth? It would seem to me that some of it is yet to be fulfilled. Now, again, this is where people start to kind of go different places in their interpretation. But, you know, to me, I'm, I'm convinced that starting in chapter 4 through the end of the book is future. What you have in chapters 4 and 5 are a heavenly vision uh, where, in a sense, God is revealing himself as creator, redeemer, and he's showing that he has the right to judge the world. In chapters 6 through 18, you have what's often called the great tribulation, God pouring out his wrath on a uh, sinful world. In chapter 19, into the beginning of chapter 20, you have Jesus Christ returning to the earth, uh, defeating his enemies. In chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, establishing the millennial kingdom on earth. And after a final satanic rebellion, in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, you have the great white throne judgment. And then the last two chapters are a picture of heaven with a final invitation to come to Jesus and respond to the grace of God. So, to me, 
That's kind of the big overall picture uh, of the book of Revelation. We're going to send out an outline for you tomorrow. I I, I encourage you to read uh, the book of Revelation, but I personally believe there's some chronology in there based on the wording of the text. I mean, I know there's kind of some interpretive interludes, but you have John saying things like, and and then, and after this, and after these things, and those kind of things. That would indicate to me chronology if you take the text at uh, face value. So, with that as the big picture, let's drill down then on these two words, throne and kingdom. So, uh, let's make two points today. Here's the first one. The throne of God is the foundation and centerpiece of everything in the world. The throne of God is the foundation and centerpiece of everything in the world. You say, you know, why focus on this? That's not future. That's not prophecy. Uh, I, I want to know, you know, what the seven heads are and the ten nations and the dragon and the mark of the beast and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, if you're here to see the Left Behind series, you should probably just go watch the videos. I'm not your guy for that. But this is the thing. Whatever the details are and whoever's right and wrong about that, If Jesus Christ is on his throne, the future's secure. That's really the issue. See, sometimes I think we miss the forest for the trees. We we get lost in in, in the weeds. And uh, the, the, the book of Revelation is not ultimately about a bunch of weird symbols. The Bible says, it starts by saying it's the revelation, which literally means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Um, I, I mean, and, and, uh, and unveiling would be like, you know, you, you have these boards that, that slide and they're closed, and then we re- pull them apart to unveil people in, in the baptistry. It's like pulling back a curtain so you can see something that you couldn't see before. In the Gospels, we see Jesus coming uh, as a man. He's the God-man, but his glory is veiled. Because he came to die for us. In the book of Revelation, his glory is unveiled. We see him in all of his glory and power and splendor and might and the great in his greatness as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we see the Father with the Son at his right hand seated on the throne. You see, in 22 chapters, if, if my uh, counting is correct, The throne of God is referred to, is pictured, talked about 38 times in the book of Revelation. It's what the book's about. But it's what everything is about. It's what everything is about. Because what the Bible claims is that we didn't come from nothing and again, if you want to be a secular humanist, if you're going to be an atheist, you have to explain why is there something instead of nothing. Uh, Dr. Aiken said that last week. I would just add to it. You would also have to explain how everything came from nothing because scientists tell us the universe can't be eternal. So the Bible answer would be, we sang it, the one who was and who is and who is to come. 
that God is eternal. He stands outside of time and space, that he's on his throne, and he is the source of all things. And not only is he the source of all things, he's the sustainer of all things. He's the sovereign ruler of all things. And when it's all said and done, he's going to culminate all things according to his plan. So there's four particular things that I want to point out to you uh, about the throne of God in the book of Revelation. And and again, this is the foundation. And I would much rather you get this than some of the other details. Because if you get this, you'll be fine. Because again, what we have to decide in a crazy, topsy-turvy world with lives that are full of problems sometimes is who's in control. Is anybody in control? Are we in control? You know, to me, it would seem like if we haven't learned uh, anything else in the last two years, I would hope that we've learned that we're not in control. I mean, I hope that illusion, and it is an illusion, has been shattered. But some people are like, well, I mean, if God's in control, how could things be so bad? You know, the book of Revelation gives us an answer to that. A Christian worldview gives us an answer to that. Because if, if it's all true, what it would say is, because we're made in the image of God, we get to make choices. And our choices have messed things up. God made everything good. I mean, he created the potential for evil in making us not as robots, but as human beings who make choices. Uh, you know, sin, evil entered into the world, but God in his goodness uh, played by his own rules because he came. He didn't stay up in heaven. He came. He became one of us. He kept the law. He suffered and he died. But then he's coming back to this victory he won on the cross to consummate it, to establish his kingdom, and to set it all right. He finishes what he starts. Uh, Like Dr. Aiken said last week, last things are like first things, but only better. God put man man and woman, Adam and Eve, in a garden, in a a paradise, and he came down in fellowship with him. We're going to read at the end of the book of Revelation. We're not even going to read all of it. We're going to read eternally. We're going to be in heaven, and there's a garden in heaven, and the tree of life is there, and there's no more curse there, and there's a river of life, and there's the healing of the nations there, and we're going to be in the presence of God, fellowshipping with him forever. He brings it all full circle and sets it all right if he's on his throne if he's not on his throne we got to figure it out though on our own the throne of God is a place of worship Let's look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5. I mean, we sang a song, a Revelation song earlier that was written out of these two chapters. But uh, let's, let's look at a few verses. Tim, I'm, I'm kind of going to skip ahead for time's sake. Uh, let, let's go to, to verse 8 of chapter 4. Chapter 4 pictures God the Father being worshipped as creator. Uh, chapter 5 pictures God the Son being worshipped as redeemer. And, and it says here, Revelation 4, 8, that the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Remember the Bible interprets itself. Remember we were in Isaiah chapter 6 a few weeks ago? 
And you remember there were these creatures, and if you read back here, they had six wings. And what were they crying out? They were crying out, holy, holy, holy. He says, he says, who was and is and is to come. It's a way of saying he's eternal. He's outside of time and space. He always has been. He always will be. And it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, they exist and were created. It's a place of worship. Look at chapter 5, starting in verse 8. It says, Now, when he, talking about Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It have made us kings and priests, or some translations would say, a kingdom of priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then John says, I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And our minds can't grasp this, but it's some glimpse into the throne room of heaven. It's a picture of what it's going to be like. A picture of what your loved ones who have died in Christ are experiencing. A picture of what heaven's really about. And, I mean, I, please don't take this as crass. Anyone who's grieving, I mean, the Bible, we're going to read a passage later that talks about a great reunion in heaven. But, uh, you know, heaven is not about going and seeing, fill in the blank on a relative. Heaven's about going and seeing Jesus. But notice what it says. It says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. You wonder if the Bible teaches Jesus is God. Well, he's being worshipped as God right here. So it's a place of worship. It's also a place of sovereign rule. We read chapter 4, verse 11, but look again what it says. It says, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And notice what it says, by your will they exist and were created. So the Bible's answer to the question of why is there something instead of nothing would be that it's the will of God. The Bible's answer to the question of why are you here would be because it's the will of God. In fact, Paul said in, in a sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts, uh, I'm paraphrasing, that we were created, uh, born when we were born, to whom we were born, where we were born, by the will of God. 
Daniel 7, uh, 13 and 14 says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the cloud of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. You, you could argue, based on this passage of Scripture, that the story of human history is the story of the rise and the fall of earthly kingdoms and it culminated in the final rise the complete rise of the fall or of the complete rise of the kingdom of God where every other kingdom is going to fall and it's the one that's going to last forever and when you read history that's the big picture just fill in the details why are we Christians first and American citizens second because we're living for the kingdom that's going to last forever, not the one that's going to pass away like every other kingdom. I mean, even if it is uh, the greatest kingdom, and king, I'm using the word, I know we're a republic, but I'm using that word loosely. Even if you believe we're the greatest nation who ever lived, we're not ultimate. Revelation 11, uh, 15 says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God's on his throne sovereignly ruling. My question would be, is he on the throne of your heart sovereignly ruling over you? Now, hang on a second though. You may take that question the wrong way. Here's the thing. The answer is yes. The real question is, are you acknowledging his sovereign rule over you? And you also need to know that someday you will because every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Are you going to do it now where you can be saved or are you going to do it later when you have to and it's too late? That's the issue. You say, but everything seems so crazy. But understand what the Bible teaches us, that God has a plan, there's a process, he's working it out over time. Trust him that he's going to bring it all together when the time's right. And that's talking about human history. But he's working in the same way in your life as well. You know, so when we see things this way, we know that we're not at the center of the universe. That God's at the center of the universe. And so if we get ourselves out of the center of, the uni of, of our own universe, uh, it'll, it, it'll be good for us spiritually, and it'll make us much more tolerable to everyone around us. And... Uh, what, what it will ultimately do is it will help us see that we're graced, that the little story of our life fits into the big story of God's sovereign plan for this world. That, you know, because what that means is, if that's true, that our life can have an eternal impact. If that's not true, it just all dies with us. The throne of God, a place of worship, it's a place of sovereign rule, it's also a place of judgment. Uh, look back at the beginning of chapter 5. He says, I saw the, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. 
But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its uh, seven uh, seals. Now, don't have time to read all this, but you say, what's the scroll talking about? Well, if you go to the next chapter, there's an unfolding, cascading series of judgments represented by these seals. Don't have time to read the whole chapter, but let's go to the end of the chapter. In verses 16 and 17, the, the people are saying as they experience this judgment, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from, what a phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? But here's the good news. I mean, Dr. Aiken talked about that this last week. One of the big themes of the Bible is salvation through judgment. We see salvation through judgment here because uh, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5 go on and say, They sang a new song, saying, You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and people and tongue and nation. See, here's the amazing thing. You know, this phrase, the wrath of the Lamb, well, Jesus, the Bible tells us, again, this is something you see throughout Scripture, the scarlet thread of redemption throughout the Bible. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world to take our sins away. But the wrath of the Lamb, have you ever met a wrathful Lamb? I mean, that, that's, uh, that, that's an interesting metaphor. But the Bible tells us, that the wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, uh, Romans 1.18. It says, if we don't believe in Jesus Christ, John 3.36, that the wrath of God abides upon us. But here's the thing. The Lamb of God on the cross absorbed the wrath of God, so we don't have to experience it. But if we reject Him, He is going to pour that wrath out, out, out that wrath on us. So there's a throne there's a throne. What do you believe about the throne of God, about who he is? Do you believe he's in control? Is he your Lord? Is he reigning over you? There's a throne, but then out of the throne, there's a kingdom. And, and I, I need to move quickly here, but this is the second point I want to make. is The king on his throne will establish his eternal kingdom. The king on the throne will establish his eternal kingdom. What, what does that involve? Well, I believe it involves the rapture, the removal of the church. Now, I'm going outside of, of Revelation on this because uh, it's not really directly talked about in, in Revelation. I think it's pictured by the absence of something that I'll explain. But let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse uh, 13. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died in Christ, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And so there's a very practical pastoral purpose here that... Uh, you know, as painful as it is to lose people, that if they've died in Christ, yes, we sorrow, we grieve, we hurt, but we can do it with hope. Knowing, I mean, uh, the last verse here, uh, or, or not the last verse, next to the last verse, uh, you know, talks about how we're going to be gathered up together. So it's not the primary thing that heaven's about. Heaven's primarily about Jesus, but there is going to be a great reunion for those who are in Christ. But he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, those who are dead in Christ. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another uh, with those words. So what we see in this passage is there's a, a resurrection of dead believers. There's the Lord returning. There's the removal of living believers to meet the Lord in the air. And there's out of that a reunion of all believers. Now, I believe, and, and this is one of the points where all this gets debated, I believe this is going to happen before this period of great tribulation, of this period of judgment in the book of Revelation. Let's tell you quickly why. Um, I think when you read that passage, and we're going to read a passage about the return of Christ in Revelation 19, 11 through 16 later, that the details are different enough that they have to refer to two different events. You can judge for yourself when we read the other passage. But there's also the Old Testament foreshadowing. Remember what we learned last week, that all the Bible is, is about Jesus, the Old Testament's revealing Jesus to us? Well, think about what you see in, in the Old Testament. You see Enoch being translated. It's really kind of a picture uh, of the rapture, if you stop and think about it. You see Noah being protected uh, from the flood. You see you know, Lot being protected from the judgment of um, Sodom and Gomorrah. You see Israel you know, being saved through uh, the exodus. I think beyond that, uh, you see in Scripture, there's a distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, God, Paul said, has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And I think when you read the book of Revelation and when you read Daniel, uh, during this time of tribulation, after the rapture, there is a specific, defined God focusing his plan again on, uh, on the, the national people of uh, Israel. Now, in, in saying that, the church today is all people, Jew and Gentile, who have faith in Jesus Christ, one in Him. And the covenants of God in the Old Testament, I believe you know, that we're in the New Covenant now, but these covenants, there's a spiritual application to the church. But I believe there are inviolable, unbreakable promises to Israel that will literally be fulfilled when we talk about a land and a king and a seed and blessing and, and, and those kind of things. And so there has to be this distinction. I think also when you read the book of Revelation, the last word of chapter 3 is the word churches. But you don't see the church on the earth again until we're returning with Jesus in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. You see the church in, pictured in heaven uh, in between those two things, which is why I think there's almost kind of like a parenthesis in there, and I'm making this case because I'm kind of reading in, between chapter 3 and chapter 4, between the present and the future, where at some point in there, the rapture takes place, which is why it looks uh, that way. But then, ultimately, probably the biggest reason I believe this like Romans 8, 1 tells us there's no condemnation, no judgment to those who are in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If that's true, why would the church need to be here during this time of the pouring out of God's wrath during the tribulation? It's my opinion. So, uh, I think the revelation, you know, the, the rapture took place there, but uh, what I feel sure of is that, you know, in Revelation 6, 
through 18, there's a picture of this time uh, of judgment. These uh, seal judgments, bowl judgments, trumpet judgments, so on and so forth that are being pictured here. We don't have time to read a bunch of those verses, but it could probably be summarized by Matthew 24, 21, where Jesus said, Then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of this world, until this time no, nor ever shall be. You know, Jesus said in the world you're going to have tribulation, but this is something different. This is a particular time of judgment. You may say, why does God have to judge the world? Because he's holy. Because he's righteous. Because he's just. Uh, I would just say this. I think we're unfair to God. Here's what I mean. Not that he's sweating that. Uh, Not that he's losing any sleep over that. Uh, I mean, read the second psalm. He laughs at our rebellion uh, against him. Not in a ha-ha, that's funny kind of way, but in a ha-ha, you got to be kidding me kind of way. Um, so, uh, we're unfair to God in this sense. Like, if, if, um, if I did something wrong, and, um, I mean, I, I wronged somebody, I hurt somebody, and I was in Judge Sloan's courtroom, and he let me out of that because we were friends, you would be angry at him and think he's an unjust judge. But why is it? When we want that kind of justice, when God deals with people who do something wrong, the people get mad at God and be like, how could you be so mean and unloving? Listen, there's nothing unloving about vindicating victims. That's the most loving thing you could ever do. Or, or thing I hear. One of the reasons I, I believe in God is because he's, I couldn't believe in a God who's not a just God. In fact, I would say, you know, we clearly crave justice. Why? Because we're made in the image of a just God. To me, uh, uh, one of the biggest evidences there is a God is this desire for justice that we have. Because here's the reality. If there's no God and no judgment and no eternity, there is no justice. Because people get away with stuff on the earth all the time. So there's a time uh, uh, of tribulation, but at the end of this tribulation, and again, I I think we were getting into some chronological language, there's the return of Jesus to the earth to defeat his enemies. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And... If you read on, and we won't read all these verses for time's sake, over the next few verses, you see him uh, you know, defeating his enemies. You see him bringing judgment on uh, the, the earth. And uh, you, know, you say, well, you know, like, why does God have to do that? Because the wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And you say, well, why is God waiting to do that? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it tells us that God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the day of salvation. Salvation. God is giving you an opportunity to repent and trust Him and be forgiven of your sins today. And then we see, as we read on in Revelation chapter 20, 
the establishment of Christ's kingdom on the earth. Remember, God finishes what he starts. Last things are like first things, only better. You know, you read things in the Old Testament about the lion laying down with the lamb. And this time of peace, and all these is like, how could that ever be? It will be when the Prince of Peace comes. And you say, well, you know, he's coming, though. It sounds like he's coming like a mighty warrior. Understand, sometimes there can't be peace without war. There, things have to be dealt with. Revelation 20, starting verse 4, says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or, in their hand, or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. The second resurrection is a resurrection for judgment. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Again, I understand some people have a different interpretation. To me, this is the natural, plain reading of uh, the, the, the text. And, and so there's this intermediate kingdom on the earth where, you know, when you read the way things were before the fall, because Jesus, the King of Kings, is here, he restores it to that. He's ruling and reigning from God's city, uh, Jerusalem. But then, after that, things are going to move into eternity. And so, to finish, let's look at that. Later in Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. There's the great white throne judgment. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And, let's keep this in mind, books were opened. But then another book, you got books plural, books singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, plural. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. This is the second resurrection. They were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there's a set of books. There's a book. He says those who are saved are in the book, the book of life. These books are just record-keeping books. And so, when people think, you know, I can be saved by my works, by my good deeds, or whatever, there's two problems with that. I mean, beyond just simply the Bible says, if you're going to be judged by that, why? God's standard is perfection. We think it's being good enough or how we compare to other people, but the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is His perfection revealed in Jesus Christ. We all fall short. I mean, let's just be real. Like, in, in the record that God is keeping of me, there's a lot of sin in there. Same thing is true of you. Here's the other issue. Even the, the good stuff we do in an earthly sense, if, if it's not done for the glory of God, to honor Jesus Christ, if we're doing it to try to earn favor with God, that doesn't even count as a good work. So at the end of the day, we don't really have any good works to show so the way to be saved is to admit that, to run to Jesus Christ, 
flee to him, cling to the cross in the sense of like trusting him and what he has done for us, admitting that I'm a sinner, uh, letting go of my self-righteousness, just saying I'm spiritually bankrupt, God, I have nothing to offer, uh, I'm, I'm a sinner, but Jesus, I believe you died for my sins, I trust you, I bow to you as my king and my Lord, take control of my life. That's what makes you right with God. It's not what we do, it's what Jesus has done for us. But then for those whose names are written in, the, in this book of life, Revelation 21 puts it this way. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first earth had passed away. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, uh, the tabernacle, uh, the dwelling place, the, the presence of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. Listen, the good news is, if this is true, in Christ we're a new creation who are going to live in a new heaven and a new earth in the presence of God where everything is set right forever, where people from every tribe and people and, and, and nation and tongue are going to worship the Lamb of God around the throne of God forever. Why? Because God, who is on his throne, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings, is going to establish his kingdom forever. What do we need to know about the future? Well, there's probably a lot of things, but what do we need to boil it down to? It's a throne and a kingdom. If God's on his throne and you're in his kingdom, it may be rocky for a while, but when it's all said and done, you're going to be okay because all things are going to be made new. What do you believe? I believe this because I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that's what the historical evidence says. I believe this because the Bible has hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in it. And if those uh, came true, well, then I believe these other things would come true. I believe it because and I see no human explanation for the existence of uh, the nation of Israel as a free, sovereign state uh, surrounded by people who hate her. I mean, I've been there, and you can't, unless you're there, you can't comprehend how small Israel is. And it's surrounded by these people, and it's flourishing. And I believe it ultimately because, isn't this what we're looking for? Aren't we looking for the lion to lay down with the lamb? Aren't we looking for peace and love and joy? Aren't we looking for uh, harmony between people, the end of racism, the end of war, the end of you know, hunger and famine and division and just on and on with all the problems? The problem is, as Mark Sayer says, we're looking for the kingdom without the king. And only Jesus, the king, is going to bring in the kingdom. But what it says to me, too, though, if this is what our hearts long for, why? Well, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, it's because God has placed eternity in our hearts. C.S. Lewis said it, if nothing in this world satisfies us, it must mean that we were made for another world. This is the world that's coming. But the reality is, if you're not in Christ, judgment's coming. If you're in Christ, eternal life is coming. Where are you?
I just ask if you would, let's bow our heads and close our eyes.